This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On a cool, windy day in spring of 2021, Jack returned to the site of his family home in rural Pennsylvania. With it came a flood of memories. This is 438 Allegheny Road, the house uh, where I lived for five, six, seven years. I forgot exactly the number of years. But that was the time when uh, uh, the FBI introduced themselves. And uh, as, I'm, as I'm looking at this, the property, it still looks the same as when, when, when I bought it. It's a multi-level, sort of, it has uh, three roof lines. Uh, it's it's a very attractive house, uh, a two-car garage, uh, nice chimney. Uh. Despite thriving in the hustle and bustle of New York City for so many years, the countryside was more to his liking. It reminded him of his childhood days in rural eastern Germany. We are a mile west of the Delaware, about 11 miles uh, south of Stroudsburg, which is where the Pocono starts. So it's very hilly, uh, very picturesque, and, and very, very rural. The safety and sense of security of their home had also served to lower Jack's defenses over the years, as if he had never been an agent to begin with. In fact, he felt so safe that he ceased all measures that would have allowed him to detect that the FBI had started tracking him. It would be many years after the fateful day when the FBI stopped him on the bridge that he finally learned who his next-door neighbors really were. We had no idea. I was not yeah. suspicious that anything would happen, that people would be on... Now, after, so, after nine years of not having had any interaction with law enforcement, yeah, disappear from sight and never see Germany again. This was all out of my mind. And so that's when, when, when Riley showed up at, at that bridge, you know, all of a sudden the floodgates opened and, and all my, my, the memories that I had put way back into my head and locked them up, they all came rushing back in, uh, you know, because I fundamentally had forgotten that I once was a spy. <laughs> but, you know, here's a... Uh, a spot that really brings back memories. And I still remember just right after, you know, my first encounter with the FBI on that coming weekend, I was weed whacking here and I had these thoughts going on in my mind, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? You know, I, I, I just couldn't get rid of uh, the, uh, the speculation and, and, you know, what could happen to the children? Uh, do I have a chance? Can we continue to live the way we, that was the hope, the way we are living, but it was not a guarantee. Joe Riley had led the investigation to bring Jack in and finally catch the spy that had been hiding in plain sight all of these years. But what exactly do you do with an ex-KGB agent still living in the United States? Well, we essentially hoped that the Soviets would try to recontact with him in the late 90s. That was a possibility, even though it was uh, somewhat remote, but it was a possibility that as the KGB, they changed their name and they started anew that they might try to recontact some of their old agents. We hoped that might happen. But in the meantime, we were debriefing him and trying to get his identity fixed so that he could become a U.S. citizen. 
uh, that was a problem. It wasn't resolved during my tenure because I retired before that was resolved. Yeah, we thought we owed it to him for cooperating with us as thoroughly as he did and for as long as he did. Uh, provided some very valuable information uh, uh, about their training and to the NSA and others about his activities. We never promised him that, but it was just something that we thought we should do over, over time for his sake and for Penelope's as well. And of course, the kids are. They were born here. Just something that evolved over time that we thought we could do for him. Way back in 1978, Jack Barsky entered the United States for the first time. His passport was a fake and his name stolen from a Jewish cemetery from the real Jack Barsky. Though the KGB had stolen that name, Jack has kept it to this day. With help from Joe Riley and others, the long process of becoming an American citizen began. A dizzying array of bureaucracy and paperwork followed. There was simply no playbook to follow for how to allow Jack to become an American citizen. Joe Riley had used his binoculars to spy on Jack in secret, observing his life in rural Pennsylvania. He saw him interact with his children. Even from a distance, Joe got to know this man. After Jack was finally picked up by the FBI, the two spent months together debriefing and they got to know each other on a different level. They became friends. During the time that we were debriefing him, and Jack and I would meet periodically for lunch and discuss a few things, nothing significant, but we just became friendly, talking about his kids and uh, his daughter's interest in basketball and um, our mutual interest in golf and classical music and politics. Yeah, we would talk about various subjects that were going on in the world, and we just became friendly. We, after a while, we would just hang out and have lunch together and talk about everything, politics, life. We found out that we had very similar opinions about all the things that count. I had moved, obviously, way, way away from my original ideology. I was a family man. I appreciated the, the ability to have a career in this country. And then, then Joe, one day, you know, he invited me to play golf with him. I said, I got, I got to learn golf. So I, uh, I, I took some lessons, and then I joined Joe uh, and his team uh, every Saturday for several years in a row, every Saturday, to hang out, play golf, and have a little competition. We got to know each other really well. First of all, he, he already knew me before he even said hello, because he was watching me all the time, and he determined that from a distance, but not even over listening, just watching body language, that the marriage wasn't a very happy one, and that I loved my children. He knew that. I know detectives who have become friendly with guys they have arrested at one time or another. It's, it does happen. It's, it's relatively rare, but it, it does happen. Jack's investigation went on so long, and I got to know his background so well, and then got to know him personally after we arrested him, uh, and we have just continued. Jack continued to work at his regular 9-to-5 job after everything wrapped up with the FBI. Surprisingly, outside of the FBI, no one knew about Jack's past. One day at work, 
when he least expected it, Jack's life would change once again. First of all, I was ready and uh, to actually love and also accept love be- because of Chelsea. You know, because of, because of that baby that actually woke up something in me, in me that was dormant for many, many years and it was just waiting for somebody. It, without Chelsea, I don't think I would have ever even found love for, another, for an, an adult. She came into my life exactly when I was ready. Exactly when I was ready, when my marriage was gone, done. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is... The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 12, The Man with Many Faces. At the turn of the century, Jack moved his family into a McMansion in New Jersey. It appeared that he had overcome all the turmoil of his life and would be able to enjoy the remainder of his life in peace. This was not meant to be. The marriage that had always rested on a shaky foundation crumbled. Divorce was the only feasible resolution. And Jack was on his own again. Alone. He buried himself in his work, not knowing what the rest of his life would look like, whether he would actually become a U.S. citizen, and whether he would ever find love again. That changed one day when Shauna appeared to interview for a position as his executive secretary at NRG Energy. Shauna had a personal journey of her own, arriving in America in the mid-1990s. At the time when I came here, I was working at the United Nations Environment Program as a bilingual secretary, French and English, and that was a really great job for any Jamaican, let alone somebody like myself, with my background coming from inner city Kingston. So um, the only reason why I left, I actually um, got married to an American, a Jamaican American, uh, wasn't Jack at the time, and um, and I and, and so he filed for me, and I came over here because of my marriage to him. So that's the only reason why I left. Shauna aced the interview, and Jack hired her. He knew she was completely different than anyone he had ever met before. She shows she shows up, uh, and immediately lit up the place. It was open, open floor. It really was open floor. No offices. Uh, he didn't have an office. It isn't just the way she dressed. No cubicles. And the yeah. looks, but it's the radiance that came uh, with her appearance. And just very open. soon, she, you know, everybody was her friend. And I said, I said to people, I said, this lady has more class in her little, little finger than the rest of us together. We're a bunch of engineers. 
not very high class. We were just like like grunts who, who were really good with a computer. You know, we would go to church every Sunday. We would go eat at a diner, and then next thing he would bring groceries. Next thing he would bring me like a hot chocolate and a bagel. Some mornings at work because he lived near this really nice hot chocolate shop that I like. Jack and Shauna fell in love and eventually married. They formed a household despite having wildly different upbringings. How many languages are in this house? <laughs> uh, well, how many do you know? You know. One, two, three, plus Russian. Uh, and so. Spanish and English. Well, I, I said one, two, yeah. three. Uh, uh, German, English, uh, quite a bit of Spanish, and, and Russian passive. So it's four, and then you got French five. I, I, yeah, I just, and Patois, which is a dialect, so I don't technically call it a, a language. They actually call it a language. The closeness of their relationship led Jack to tell his story in front of their church. With 1,500 in attendance, Jack finally came clean with his past. Yet the story did not get out. His employer, his neighbors, his close friends still did not know. So many years after the Cold War ended, what have we learned about the life of an undercover agent? Jack Balski is, is a great example of, of the dedication it requires because you are doing two jobs, you are living two lives, you're doing a full-time studying or you know, a, a, a job, and then in the evening you're having to decode messages and do kind of counter-surveillance routes. And, and you had to be hugely motivated and hugely capable to survive. And often that meant these people were often quite successful and they'd been picked because they were seen as being very flexible, capable people who, who could withstand this kind of pressure and operate under it. And, and yes, I mean, I think it's interesting. Some, some of them clearly fare better than others if you look at the kind of history of illegals. And some, some do slightly crack under the pressure, you know, whether it's the relationships they have or, or whatever reason. But others, others flourish and relish it and are very successful often in their, their cover jobs. And, you know, that but you also think must have, you know, created some pressures within them about, you know, maybe this life or this world, which I'm quite successful at, maybe that's a kind of more interesting, attractive world. And I, I mean, you can definitely see that in the Jack, Jack Barsky story, that the pull of, of, of life, people, and also of America and of the aspects of its life, which he was good at, was something that he, he withdrew him. And I think, you know, that's clearly something that always worried the KGB. Jack had kept his identity hidden for many years. He never looked like a spy, undetectable, even by close friends and co-workers. You often think, well, surely I'd spot if there was a Russian spy living next door to me. I don't think you would, <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't know that much about their lives. And even in suburbia, where sometimes people are out talking and, you know, I'm not sure you always know as much as you think. The smart spies know how to divert the conversation away from something which reveals something about your past or where you grew up. People with, with some of the Russian illegals would go, you, you've got a slightly strange accent, haven't they, that couple? And they would notice the strange accent, but there'd always be some excuse for it. I think you can divert people away. And I think that's what's remarkable is just people clearly had no suspicion about these people. People were flabbergasted when they were told their employee, their neighbor, their friend, you know, the person whose kids played with their kids was, was actually a Russian. No idea, you know, no suspicion. So I think it's actually a bit easier than people think to do this. I mean, but that's, you know, testament to the kind of training that the Russians put into this. 
And I think the Jack Basket case makes the point that would they have found him? You know, could they have found him without a lead? I don't think so. So how many Jack Barskys were there hiding out in the U.S. during the Cold War? If you take the Mitropan archive, it suggests there were not that many. I mean, they are very hard to train. They're very hard to place. You know, I don't think we're talking about hundreds, single figures maybe, you know, the number of them, maybe double figures, but not hundreds because they are so difficult to, to, to put in place. They had to be individually crafted. So your ability to kind of create one and put them in place took so much work, so much training, that I just don't think there were that many. All these years later, how would present-day Russia view someone like Jack? The Russian mentality is traitors is what they really care about, someone who is a traitor. And I'm not sure they would view Jack Barsky as a traitor. I think that's the difference. If you look at his story, he basically wanted to change his life, didn't he? He'd been this illegal and he'd served his country. And he then, because of the human factor of relationships, he wants to stop. But it's not that he offered himself to the FBI or was turned by the FBI. He thought he'd put it all behind him and then was tracked down, not because he'd offered himself, but because of, you know, other, other traitors and other factors. And so I think that may lead him to be seen slightly differently. And how have things changed for today's version of the KGB? I think, you know, they certainly shift the way they operate. Does that mean there are no more deep cover illegals like Jack Barsky? I would not rule it out because I just think these illegals are part of Russian culture. The idea of these training these people about having your person undercover in your adversary posing as one of them, it has a huge kind of iconic appeal within the Russian state and within the Russian intelligence services. It's something they've always done. It's something they value highly. It's hugely prestigious. I'm just not convinced they would let that go or not want to have those people there. There'll be other people as well working under different types of cover, but I still feel that there will be those kind of illegals. While undercover, Jack was surrounded by the capitalism of the West, the complete opposite of the values he was taught by his communist bosses back in Russia. Vincent Houghton explains the conflict many illegals like Jack experience in the face of such vastly different value systems. There's part of it that's Western influence, but part of it is, is the indoctrination that they go through before they're sent overseas, that the, you know, the West is decadent, you know, that everyone's out for themselves, that capitalism is, you know, the evil. All the nonsense that has been taught to all the kids growing up in East Germany and the Soviet Union about how bad the West was, was within 10 minutes you realize it's bullshit. You, you go there and you're like, all the crap they've been spouting about how evil the West is, is, is crazy. It's nonsense. So not only do you have your belief system destroyed, you know, very quickly once you get to one of these places, but then once that has been broken down, everything else starts getting built up. Like, God, these are really nice people. You know, the, you know, how can I spy on Canada? They're the nicest people in the world, right? You know, why? do we look at these guys as the bad guy? They, they seem to be wonderful. What makes Barsky's story so interesting is, is that it's like a, to me, it's like a LeBron James or like a Michael Jordan or whatever sport you want to choose. It's a Tom Brady. You need to have an insane skill set in order to pull this off. 
I mean, I've, I've badly studied about six languages. I can muddle along in a couple of them, but I don't have an accent that can get away with being Russian or get away with being, you know, in Hispanic in any way. The fact that, you know, you have the ability to learn a language and learn it in such a way that you have no discernible accent is extraordinarily difficult to do. So that's one aspect. And then there's all the actual spy skills, right? You actually have all the intelligence officer skills that are, are that's not for everybody, right? There's a, there's a reason that CIA operations is very hard to get into. It's very hard to stay in. The fact that the the getting through the farm at CIA, the training center, is hard to do. The washout rate is very high. Is because learning just those skills is incredibly difficult. So you have this combination of someone very good at the intelligence tradecraft, very good at being flexible on their feet and, and being very smart, and then exceptionally good at languages. There just aren't that many people around that can do that. That stoic, hard as a rock Barsky was something he could pull off when he was a kid. But I think that that's hard to do. I think it, it, it kind of wore on him. Uh, and eventually he was human like the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, he's human, right? And, and as much as you want to actually claim that, you know, you're the you're the James Bond that never falls for him. Even James Bond falls for, you know, that's 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 the we're all people. I think that's a great part of the mythology of the Jack Barsky mythology of, you know, like I was stoned. Jack had stepped through the many years of conflict of the Cold War, offering a rare glimpse of this history through the eyes of an agent. He, he does have kind of eyewitness to some of these major events in the 70s and the 80s that I think are, are transformative. And even into the 90s, right? You know, he, he, he's able to watch his country collapse from afar and celebrate it, quote unquote, with everyone else. So, I mean, he is kind of the, the, the high IQ Forrest Gump in many respects, you know, where he, he's, he's kind of everywhere and be able to, to be involved in all this and see it from a very unique perspective. This is the ultimate game of chess. This is the ultimate game of, of diplomacy and of statesmanship. You're making decisions that will affect the world. And you're doing it without telling anybody about it. I mean, you're doing operations without telling anybody about it that will change history forever. That's what makes it interesting to me. And I think that I think that's probably what makes it interesting to everybody else also. I think Jack um, is just uh, was just a normal human being like everybody else with the same problems, same issues dealing with life uh, every day except that uh, we had a Cold War and Jack uh, was born on a different side of the line and decided to serve his country and ideology, and he did. That's former FBI agent Oliver Hall, who got to know Jack in recent years. The one thing that really surprised me, this is something Jack told me, I mean, he and I have spent hours having lunches, and, and I asked him, when you went through your KGB training, did they you know, show you videos and, and train you uh, how to live like an American. And he said, not really. I said, you're kidding. I would have thought they would have. But he, he said, no, um, you know, they, they didn't have videos of bus routes and, you know, and different, you know, so, so you, you know, kind of knew, you know, the questions to answer if, uh, if you were ever uh, quizzed. He said, not really. You kind of had to figure out for yourself how to do things. For example, that story he tells about getting a social security number. I mean, he's lucky he didn't get caught right there. 
Well, Jack and I agreed in one of our lunches, we both agreed that he would never be able to do what he did today. It would be virtually impossible with the way identification is tightened up. For example, back then, anybody could get anybody's uh, death certificate or birth certificate. Anybody. You can't do that anymore. You try and get my birth certificate or me try and get yours. It ain't going to happen. And if you try, if you want to get your birth certificate, you have to prove who you are before they'll issue it. But back then, you can get anybody. This didn't matter. There's no secret. The fact that, you know, we both arrived at the same time in New York, similar backgrounds, ages, and uh, here we are today sitting down, having lunch, and, and uh, kind of laughing about, you know, where the hell were you, Jack? <laughs> said, you know, it's amazing, Jack, you and I would have killed each other if we had to. And here we are, you know, really good friends now. And it's all because of uh, some silly ass differences that our countries uh, have and ideologies. I think you look at the other side and you have a healthy respect for them. They're doing their job. You're doing your job. They're no really no different than you are. They're dedicated to their, you know, cause. You're dedicated to yours. But if you remove that barrier, then you're the same. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Jack continued to hold on to hope that after so many years, the promise of U.S. citizenship would become a reality. Eventually, they put me in, into the official process rather than doing this behind the scenes. So I had to wait, I think, what are this, five or seven years and from a green card to a passport. But getting to that green card took forever. And so once my new liaison, whose name I w will not mention because he, uh, he's still active and and they don't appreciate it when they're mentioned by name. It, when he, he, he found out how to do it, it became real simple. Because there was no official record of Jack ever entering the country, a creative solution was devised. Two guys one day showed up with a car. We drove all the way north across the, a bridge into Canada uh, at Watertown, I believe, and then came back. And on the way back, there's a piece of paper, it's an I-something document that is uh, proof of entry. Jack Parsky entered the country on this day. That's exactly what we did. And that's when they were able to get that green card. Years passed until I had to actually tell the company where I worked that the birth date that I gave them when I was hired is wrong. That was a tricky kind of a situation. It was just as tricky as some of the things that I had to do when I worked on the cover. I had to tell him something that makes no sense. I took a deep breath one day and I went to one of the HR people and I said, hey, listen, uh, I have reason to believe that I may, you may have my, my birthday wrong in your files. I had worked for this company for 
several years already. So she went back and pulled the file, and we went through it, and there was uh, the birth date, uh, November 13, 1944. I used my, my ability to do theatrics, right? You know, <laughs> that's wrong. Don't you see? Like, you signed it here. And I said, I just don't know what I did. I mean, a four or nine, maybe it was a slip of the pen or something. And lo and behold, she just changed the four to a nine, and we were done. Now, here's the problem. The, the, one of the reasons I was concerned, this was a company that uh, owned multiple electric energy generation plants and was a part owner of a nuclear plant. The HR department had, was completely unprepared, unschooled, not trained as to basic security. That should have raised a flag for me to, to come in there and, and do what I did. It didn't, thank God. Finally, in August of 2014, Jack received the news that he'd been waiting for. It's 26 years after I resigned from the KGB. Around 20 years after my first contact with the FBI, it was a long process. I got a phone call. I won't forget that phone call. I'm from Homeland Security. Could you come into the office tomorrow? And it didn't quite click. It set in, I realized what this was about. What time do you want me to show up? So this was like, wow, this is it. That is when it became uh, emotional because I, I had a home again, official home. Many years before I had uh, uh, emotionally said goodbye to my old home. Russia never was. Moscow never was. I was a dedicated revolutionary for the for the world revolution, so to speak, N not not the Russian Soviet, but Germany was. But when I decided to stay in this country, very soon I I had completely put East Germany out of my mind. I stopped thinking about the folks back there. I stopped thinking about my childhood. I put it away. And, and put it in a, a part of my brain that I didn't, didn't want to access anymore. You always want to belong to something. This is one of the basic things that make us home, human. We want to belong to a group and also do something bigger, a nation. Now I had a country again. That felt really good. But it, it also reactivated that part of my brain that said Germany because now I could get a passport and go back home. That's the next thing I did. The next day I, I applied for a passport. I got it in time to get to Germany in the fall of that year before it got really cold. And so that's when I did a trip through my past. It had been so many years since Jack had been back to Germany. He had a real passport. He was ready to go back. I had to. This was an emotional thing, it wasn't rational. I had to just go back and, and connect with where I came from. I did not realize that this was really important for my psychological equilibrium because I had this manufactured dual personality. It wasn't dual, dual. And I had compartmentalized my German being from my American being. I, I wanted to go be German for 
little while. And the uh, unintended consequences were that eventually Humpty Dumpty got fused back together again, which in the long run uh, got to, I'm now at a point where I'm for the first time in my entire life really comfortable with myself. I know who I am. Even when I'm just out there in public interacting with people, I feel better about me. And I don't think that would have happened if uh, I had not reconnected with where I came from. Because even though I lived many more years in this country than I lived in Germany, but the roots, the childhood is all there, right? Even before he decided to go back to Germany for the first time in so many years, Jack had started talking to old friends from his youth. He reconnected with his college friend Gunter, leading him to his firstborn son, also named Gunter. So many years ago, Edeltraud and Jack had a son together, and Jack had buried these memories too. But like Matthias, they too reunited. Uh, as a matter of fact, Chelsea didn't find uh, Günther. Günther was introduced to me via m- my friend Günther, because uh, my friend was in touch with Edeltraud. And at one point, Edeltraud uh, reached out to Günther and asked him if there was any chance that he might know something about her son's father. And so now Günther sends me an email. This is loosely translated. Uh, it was sort of uh, a little mysterious. A certain lady would like to know something about the father of her child. Well, I knew who that was. And I said, well, yeah, by all means, you know, let's get in touch. So then Günther came to visit. Uh, I picked him up from the airport. The initial reaction was very similar Matthias, when we got together, he stared at me for a while. When Günther got in the car, he stared at me for a while. We got, we got along famously. We're not that tight, but we're good. There's no, no problem there. Passport in hand, Jack did go back to Germany. He visited old friends and walked the mostly unchanged small town he grew up in, in eastern Germany. The trip also gave him an opportunity to see his son, Gunter, and Edeltraud and her husband. It would be the first in a series of trips back home for Jack as he revisited the life he thought he had left behind forever. I always, like, calculate in my head well, if this didn't happen, what would my life be? Or if this did happen, what would things be now? For example, if the FBI, when they caught up with my dad, decided that he was a threat, I would not be sitting here right now. I wouldn't even know who he is. You have to remember, my mom was illegal. The marriage that they had was illegal and void by law because he was not a true American citizen. He was posing as one. and. My mom didn't know that. She thought she was able to be, you know, become a citizen by way of naturalization. She thought she was doing this the right way. And if the FBI caught up with him, thought he was a threat, he'd be in trouble. He'd be in federal prison somewhere, sent back. I don't know what they would do with him. But I do know that my mom would be deported. And my brother and I were born in the States. Just because we were born in the States, and we, don't, we didn't have the other citizenships, we would be in foster care system and probably split up. 
and I probably wouldn't know anything about my dad. Maybe my mom. I'm sure they would have that information on her, but probably wouldn't know anything about him. And then if you go even further back to when my dad had to make the decision of whether to, to stay or to leave, he had this passport and money and this escape route to Canada, and that was going to be it. The thing is, that passport would have given him another name, and he would leave, and that would be it. My mom didn't know his real name until much later. So there would have been no way of knowing who my dad was ever. And so it would have been a much more difficult life. And we were living in New York City. And New York is not an easy place to live. Not saying that it would have been impossible. I'm just saying my life would have been a lot different. And I definitely would not be in, in the position that I'm in. Um, so I do think about that all the time. And you have to, you do, everybody should think about those things. If I do this, how is it going to affect the future? Right? Or if this had happened 10 years ago, would I be sitting here right now? So you, I think about this stuff all the time. Though Jack had told his church about his life as a spy, word didn't get out until he did a series of TV interviews with Der Spiegel in Germany and 60 Minutes here in the United States. Jack had come clean with Shauna even before their marriage. But when the 60 Minutes broadcast aired, it finally sunk in that Jack really had been a spy, and with it, a reckoning. What version of this man was she with? The moment when I found out that Jack was a spy, how did that affect me and how did that affect my family? And it, it actually took a toll personally on me because, um, I, I, again, I didn't believe that he was a spy. So when I finally accept that he was, I had a lot of questions for him. I said things like, how, what is to tell me that you're not going to leave me in Trinity as you left um, Gerlinda and Matthias? You know, I was very upset what he did to her. I felt like we, we argued about it a lot. Maybe Jack doesn't remember. But I felt like it was such a, you know, like, how could you moment? I kept saying, how could you? How could you do that? And what's to stop you? How do I know you're still not working? I mean, what if you're telling me stories? Like, what is really going on with you? After keeping secrets for so many years, Jack's 60 Minutes interview served as shocking news to those that thought they knew who he was. Gerard Boo, Jack's former co-worker who himself had been questioned by the FBI, found out just before news broke in the United States. I found out just before the 60 Minute episode aired. Jack never told me. We had a pretty good relationship at the time, but we had a lot of serious conversations in regards to life, work, stuff like that. It kind of half apologized. Is that it, I don't I don't mind it at all. I think it it kind of takes a lot of courage to be able to do the stuff he did. While Jack and I, you know, we have had conversations, and and I followed him when I see him on CNN, and then he actually sent me an email. We are good friends. That there is no, you know, he just basically the other day says, "I'm sorry that I." put you through what I put you through, but he really didn't. Family and friends were not the only ones that heard about Jack's life as a KGB agent. His employer, dealing with secrets of their own about their electric power operation, was not so pleased by the news. It would be a PR nightmare if the public found out that one of the company's employees was a former KGB agent. Jack and the company parted ways. Today, 
Jack and Shauna have a daughter, Trinity, together and live a busy life just outside of Atlanta. Jack continues to stay active, reconnecting with old friends and sharing old spy stories. Recently, he spoke in front of a large crowd of kids and told them of his journey of redemption and forgiveness. I'm very excited to introduce our speaker to you this morning. I know some of you guys have kind of heard about um, who he is, a little bit of his story so far, maybe. But I just want to introduce him um, quickly to you, and then I'm going to invite him up here, and he's going to share his story with you. Um, Jack Barsky was born and raised in Germany, and during the Cold War, he was recruited by the KGB. I got about 40 minutes now to tell you a story that is so bizarre that I uh, sometimes have a problem believing that I lived it, but I have a lot of proof that I did. So let's start at the beginning. Let's see if this works. Joe Riley had seen his fair share of incredible cases during his time in the FBI, but nothing really compares to his time with Jack. Jack is a very honest guy. He, he, he is uh, almost at times blunt. Well, not at times, he, he can be blunt. Uh, telling you what he thinks and w- what he feels. And uh, that's, that's a good quality, I think. I mean, he might not succeed in the diplomatic corps, but uh, uh, otherwise, I mean, I think it's, it's good to know what people think, you know, are able to, to tell you. I mean, he's, a, he's an honest guy, and he's a decent guy, and, uh, and he's had a fascinating life. And I think partly there is in all of us, or maybe many of us, a desire to, toward a, the adventurous life, you know, to do something adventurous. And he did, certainly. My life was moderately adventurous, going into the FBI and traveling around the country and even the Far East conducting investigations. And it's been interesting, and I've, I enjoyed it when I, when I did it. But it wasn't on the scale that he did. Uh, that was quite amazing. Plus the wives that he's had and the kids. It's, uh, it's been quite difficult and dangerous and fascinating life. Joe and Jack met up on a spring day earlier this year. Most importantly, they discussed their plans for Saturday. Oh, Jack, I'm going to... Get uh, golf clubs from my son-in-law. Oh. I'll pick them up uh, tomorrow. Oh. So we'll be Is able to... Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, have you uh, come up with a fourth? Yeah, I was hoping to get a couple of different guys, but they couldn't make it for one reason or another. If you get the clubs from your uh, son-in-law, we can still get the rental from, uh, for Jesse. From, so then you could play with Jesse. The one thing is we we haven't all talked about the elephant in the room, right? So when when it's like me and Matthias, like Matthias and I have not talked about the whole like choosing one over the other thing. We've never talked about that. I don't think we ever will. I don't think we need to because it is more important now that we all have each other. And I think everybody recognizes this without having to say it. It's more important now that we all are connected to each other, that we maintain that than really like rock the boat too much. Our family's never going to be the Brady Bunch. Our family's never going to get together all for reunions. 
or unions. Like we've literally had one time where it was all the brothers and dad and me all together one time. I don't know if that's going to happen again. Chelsea, Jesse, Matthias, and Gunter, and their dad, all came together in Germany in 2015 as part of the 60 Minutes TV piece. Oh my God, the best trip ever. Awesome. <laughs> it was uh, long days of uh, driving around all over the place and finding out more stuff about him, about places yeah. he went to school and where he went to do like whatever training operations, all that stuff. It was really cool. Yeah, no, think about it. I never thought I would ever be able to do that, to take my now grown-up kids and show them where I grew up. In that backward part of, of Germany, they saw the, the house that, where I lived from year one to year ten. They saw the place where I was born. We saw his first apartment as a spy yeah. somewhere. It's a tiny little <laughs> one-room shack thing, I think. Growing up, I would ask him questions about his childhood, and it was like, there's no pictures. And I didn't have the real story, so now I have the real story. And it was really cool to discover these things about him. And then also to do that at the same time as all of my other siblings, all of them, except for my little sister, obviously. But with my dad there, that in his country, that's really, it blew my mind. Sometimes I say, say to myself, was I really a spy? That doesn't make any sense. The German part is also much more real because I'm in touch with friends and families. I let that back in. That's part of who I am after having suppressed it for many years. So that's good. And, and, and that sort of made me whole. But the whole espionage thing, you know, I just like, yeah, I have proof. You know, all I have to do is ask a call Joe Riley up and say, uh, did, you, did you at one time try to arrest me? <laughs> when your life has very different and, and very extremely different aspects to it, once you're out of one of them, it's very difficult to even imagine that you were in there once. The man born in eastern Germany right after World War II had become two men. He had two different personalities. And he led two drastically different lives. He is a man that has walked through history. From the time the Berlin Wall was first built to its ultimate fall years later, this man offers a rare glimpse of the events of the Cold War from a completely different perspective. His story is one of a series of remarkable what-ifs. What if he had refused to meet with the agent in his dorm room that Saturday morning? What if he had never lied to his mother about his true identity? What would have happened if he had chosen Gerlinda and Matthias over staying in America with his daughter, Chelsea? What would have happened if communism would have emerged victorious in the Cold War? And how, after all of this, is this man living in a quiet suburb in Atlanta as an American citizen? Whether you think of him as Albrecht Dietrich or Jack Barsky, the story of secrets, of spies, of espionage, and of East versus West or good versus evil is not a story that disappeared when the Cold War ended. This story has evolved. The leaders have changed, 
but the danger and threat has transformed into something new. So, the next time you speak with your neighbor, casually talking about the weather or world events, ask yourself if you really know them as well as you think you do. They might just be a spy. You see that thing on your wall up there? The book? I pointed that painting or whatever the you painting have out there. The painting, yeah, the, the man with three faces. Was, yeah. <laughs> there three in there? Uh, I see at least two. I see. And there's a third oh, one hiding behind. I see behind. four now, thank oh, you. okay. Now you just messed me up. I <laughs> initially saw two, now I see three. Here you have your real self. This you specifically. Your real self and then the... Jack Barsky, the, the last identity that you had, and he had other identities before that, of course, but when you sit there and you craft a story about who Jack Barsky is and what kind of person that is, and then you go live as that person for 30 years or longer. In the beginning, it's acting. In the beginning, you're crafting this, you're developing yeah. this, and you're making it up as you go, but then you become it. And so you become mm -hmm. it and you become, as the longer you are this person, you get further and further away from your real self. And so now the, this kind of like you're, you've come out of the Jack Barsky part in the last like 10 years slowly, but a lot more recently I've seen it in bigger doses. And you're like a lot more your real self. And I'm sure you forgot about that. In the last two years, this is the first time in my life that I like myself. It's because I now know who I am. And I was... You remembered. I, I, I was, up until just about now, I, I was uncertain. You get feedback from all kinds of different people, but what does that mean? Uh, some, some is good and some is not so good. You, you, you mess up, you... Uh, you you do good, uh, but I just didn't know who I was at Corn. Almost seventy years to get there. Yeah, and then I I went ahead and went through the name change process because I knew if I go public with Barsky, it, it might still, even though they were okay with it, it might still hit some emotional strings, and I didn't want to deal with that. And it was more of a respect gesture than anything. See, you go by what? Ditrich. And she can't even pronounce it. Something that, you know, he doesn't know this, but Matthias took his wife's name. Yes, he did. So there isn't, I'm the only Ditrich. <laughs> and of course, I'll probably not have that name if I get married again, but... What's the one thing Chelsea wants people to know about her dad? That he's a human, and the spy thing is just a part of the past. And then for the people who think he's a piece of shit for what he did, that they need to look at themselves and really face the truth about themselves and understand that, you know, we're all flawed. And because somebody has done something wrong in their past doesn't, doesn't really put the nail in the coffin for them. He's somebody who is dealing with his guilt. You know, underneath the, the whole spy persona and a spy past, there's a human there who has real feelings and has a normal life like the rest of us. And it's my dad, of course. I love my dad. He's the only dad I have. 
you know. Well, I don't want to exaggerate, but uh, I can't imagine living a life without family. It's not the same family that most normal families are. And I just remember four years ago when we moved down to Georgia and I had to stay back in the house by myself. I was, I was in that empty house uh, with one bed and, and a little bit of furniture for about three months. And at one point, the house starts talking to you. And then when, when you talk back to the house, then it's time to probably get to see a psychiatrist. So, so, so I'm so, I'm a family man now. And I wasn't. When I was, you know, the undercover agent, I was a lone wolf. I wasn't a family man either here or, or in Germany. And that changed dramatically. And again, that's all Chelsea's fault. Thank you. <laughs> I knew that I was emotionally very shallow for a long time. But not only emotionally was I shallow, but intellectually I was shallow. I didn't dig deeper into certain aspects of life, philosophy, anything. It was all surface and very wide. And my brother had a very interesting comment. He said that, you know, I was playing. I was playing a lot. I like to play, I like to play, and I like to win. And I realized that's true. To me, the world was a playground, and I played in it, and I picked my games. Any game that I picked, I played hard, and I wanted to win. So my brother was really right on the money. Am I still playing? Yeah. But the game that I picked is twofold. One is to serve my family, and two is to share some truths as I know them with the world. Very good. Oh wow. boy, that was, that was intense, man. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Josh Cleave. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.